Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey that the new age of enlightenment begins. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Hello, everyone. It is the Oddcast featuring me, your odd man, out. Thank you once again for taking the time to hang out with me. This is a special show. It's going to be a little bit shorter today. But it's something I wanted to throw together quickly just to kind of alert people. Something that actually I used to support up until recently, not financially, but I thought I supported it because I didn't understand it. And honestly, I would say that's the case with the majority of regular people who support what we're going to be talking about today. And that is the Convention of States, or otherwise known as the CONCON. Now, what is a convention of states. Have you heard of it? Some people have it, and that's okay. So let's read here from Wikipedia. I know I don't like Wikipedia very much, but it's one of two methods authorized by Article 5 of the United States Constitution, whereby amendments to the United States Constitution may be proposed. Two-thirds of the state legislatures, that is 34 of the 50, may call a convention to propose amendments which become law only after ratification by three-fourths of the states. That's 38 out of the 50. The Article V Convention method has never been used, but 33 amendments have been proposed by the other method, a two-thirds vote in both houses of Congress, and 27 of these have been ratified by three-fourths of the states. Although there has never been a federal constitutional convention since the original one, At the state level, more than 230 constitutional conventions have assembled in the United States. In recent years, some states have argued that state governments should call for such a convention. They include Michael Ferris, Lawrence Lessig, Sanford Levinson, Larry Sabato, Jonathan Turley, Mark Levin, Ben Shapiro, and Greg Abbott. You might say, well, 
I actually support some of those guys. I think some of those guys are good. Well, we're going to look a little bit deeper into a few of those. It also says organizations opposed to an Article 5 convention include the John Birch Society, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the Eagle Forum, Common Cause, the Cato Institute, and the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, while the Heritage Foundation has also cautioned against a convention. Now, I'm not sure that last part is correct at all because the Heritage Foundation is directly connected to many of the members of the Convention of States or the guys who are pushing the Convention of States. And many of those guys, the main ones who are advertising for it, the biggest names, are Council for National Policy members and either members or connected to ALEC, which is the American Legislative Executive Council. It also goes on to say here on Wikipedia that in 1949, six states, California, Connecticut, Florida, Maine, New Jersey, and North Carolina, applied for a convention to propose an amendment to enable the participation of the United States in a world federal government. Multiple other state legislatures introduced or debated the same proposal. These resolutions were part of an effort at the time to integrate the United States into a potential world government. Now, it says here on the Convention of States website, about 17 or 18 states have already passed COS legislation, with about five more passing in one house, and then about six or seven more states are up for legislation So it's getting pretty close. I mean, it's moving along pretty fast. Now, this is sold to conservatives and libertarian-esque patriotic types as a way to really stick it to the government, to limit the power of the government. But as we read earlier, even the John Birch Society is actually against this, and they've actually made some good points about why we should not go along with this. And they've actually exposed some of the members that are pushing the Convention of States. The second method has never been used before. We've been well over 200 years under the current Constitution. And it has been brought up a number of times throughout our nation's history. Even as early as 1788, the very year the Constitution was ratified, they already began talking about, let's propose a Bill of Rights through an Article 5 convention. And that's where the first pushback against an Article 5 convention began, uh, namely James Madison in particular, who spoke against, he started initially against a Bill of Rights altogether, felt it was unnecessary. He eventually got on board with that, but strongly pushed against achieving the Bill of Rights through an Article 5 convention, saying it was a more dangerous mode than Congress. He, uh, in fact, letter to George Turberville, November 2nd, 1788, he says, He would tremble at the results of a convention. In the present temper of America, and uh, two months later, he wrote a similar letter saying in the present ferment of parties, that because of the opposition and political views at the time, there was so much argument, so much uh, little strong hatred for each other on different sides of the aisle, that he felt it was a very dangerous time to be opening up to a convention. In fact, he mentions having witnessed the difficulties and dangers of the first convention, that being the 1787 convention where our constitution was written, I would tremble for the result of a second. So that's really the origins of the opposition to an Article 5 convention comes from Madison himself. Now, on the Convention of States, you mentioned that you you kind of see the same problems, but you, you, you don't think that the model of using it to amend the constitution 
is a good model? Why, why not? What is the argument against it? What would you say? Number one, just a simple litmus test. If in today's political environment, we were to pull up the anchor of the U.S. Constitution and drift to the center of political thought today, do you feel like that would move us closer to the views of Marx or Madison? And obviously, our nation has moved far more towards the socialist mentality than we were in 1787 when the Constitution was originally written. And, and that's one of the things we see. Anytime we see a Constitution being drafted, it tends to reflect the political views of that time. I came from Montana. I lived there for the number about the last decade. And in 72, they created a new Constitution right during the height of the hippie era, and it's often referred to as the hippie constitution because of it. In the same way today, I think we'd see a lot more socialism injected into the constitution than 1787 produced. Now, I know proponents of it, they argue that they can propose amendments, but they're saying that you can't undo current rights within the constitution. Is this accurate? What do you, what do you think on this? It's really not. And, and one of the things they use to to make that claim is the convention can only talk about the things that we authorize them to talk about. If we have applied for a balanced budget amendment convention, then the convention can only talk about a balanced budget amendment. That's the argument they're making. Of course, they would say if we applied for a convention for changing or repealing the Second Amendment, then they could talk about that. Even they would agree with that if it were a point. But the problem is historical precedent does say otherwise. And this is probably the number one most important argument between the two sides is what does the historical precedent say? The 1787 convention where our constitution was written is really the only national constitution amending convention we've ever had. And that's what we're talking about here as well. And in that case, we have the existing constitution was the Articles of Confederation. States sent delegates to the 1787 convention and gave them specific delegate commissions or authority. You're authorized to make these types of changes. You're not authorized to change these things and that kind of thing. In that situation, again, kind of showing both sides of the argument here, Mark Meckler, Convention of States, organizations like that will repeatedly claim those convention delegates were given full authority to make any changes they felt were necessary to the Articles of Federation. Now, if that were true, do you think the delegates would have known that? And the reason I say that is because as you look through Madison's notes from the federal convention, you see this issue came up repeatedly throughout the convention. Do we actually have the authority to be creating a new constitution instead of just amending the Articles of Confederation? And they, of course, as is typical in any heated political issue, there were two sides of the argument. The first side said things like, oh, we really don't have the authority and we should not proceed with changing the constitution this drastically without first going back to the states and getting further authority. That was the argument of William Patterson, uh, Charles Pinckney, Eldridge Jerry, John Lansing. The other side of the argument was not what Mr. Meckler says. They have full authority. The other side of the argument, represented by people like Edmund Randolph, uh, Alexander Hamilton, even James Madison, was, you're right, we really don't have the authorization to be doing this, but we need to do it anyway. This is an urgent need of our nation. The very future of our nation is at stake. We must proceed. Nobody stood up in the 1787 convention and claimed Look at our commissions. We're fully authorized to make any changes we feel necessary. That's Meckler's argument. That's a modern historical revisionism type argument. But it does not exist in 1787. That was Robert Brown, who is a constitutional expert who goes around the country speaking on the possible negative consequences of a convention of states. And he has offered to debate Mark Meckler from Convention of States and others. And he can't get any traction there. As far as I know, they've never taken him up on a debate. So I think that tells a lot there as well. I want to look at some of the main characters, some of these main personalities who are 
advertising the Convention of States. And then we'll go from there. We can draw a line because there's several organizations that kind of have a theme in this Convention of States with the main members here. So you've got Ben Sass, who is an honorary member of the Regime Change NGO National Endowment for Democracy, or NED, which we've done several shows on. You've got Marco Rubio. He's actually a member of one of NED's four main NGOs, the International Republican Institute, or IRI. So you've got connection there. Rubio's given speeches at the Council on Foreign Relations and England's Chatham House. You've got Jeb Bush, who's also given speeches at both of those places, and I'm sure most people would not trust Jeb Bush. You've got Morton C. Blackwell, who was one of the founders of the Council for National Policy. You've got Mark Levin, the talk show host, who has given speeches at APAC and has been awarded by the Zionist Organization of America. He's also given speeches at the Council for National Policy and is currently a member, if I'm not mistaken. You've got Ben Shapiro, who is a militant Zionist. I think there's no doubt about that whatsoever. He's given speeches at different Chabad temples and organizations like that. You've got talk show host Dennis Prager, who's also affiliated with Chabad for a very long time. You may have heard of the Chabad Mafia. You've also got Ronnie D., Ron DeSantis from Florida, which a lot of people see as the next conservative icon. But let me tell you, he is affiliated with a bunch of these Zionist organizations like Zao. He's also been awarded by Zao, Zionist Organization of America, and he's worked out various contracts with several different Israeli organizations in Florida. Of course, that being said, you have to understand that Florida, southern Florida, is one of the largest populations of Jews besides New York. The two main guys you have here are Michael P. Ferris, who is the CEO of the Alliance for Defending Freedom. And it sounds great. We all love freedom, but they work directly with the UN, and they're just like Ned. They give out these global grants. He's also a member of the Federalist Society and a member, of course, of the Council for National Policy. You've got Mark Meckler, who is the head of the Convention of States. He is a Council for National Policy Gold Circle member, Breitbart contributor, and a Zionist as well. And we'll look at that in a few minutes because I think it's provable. So you've got this theme here of the Council for National Policy and these Zionist pushers, but you've also got ALEC, which is the American Legislative Executive Council, and they are one of the also founders and pushers of the Heritage Foundation, and the Council for National Policy. Also, the Coors family, the Coors Beer family, are pushers of the Convention of States and also initial funders and still funders of the Council for National Policy. If you're not familiar with the Council for National Policy, I suggest you look into my friend John Brisson's work and his We've Read the Documents Odyssey page. Look up John Brisson. We did a show together. We've done a couple of shows together, actually, on the Council for National Policy. But quickly, I'll just tell you if you haven't heard those. They are what they call the secret right. It's kind of a more conservative version of the Council on Foreign Relations. But 
It was partially founded by members of the Council on Foreign Relations, and it's not really conservative. It's more about just getting their business done the way they want it done through this secretive network. And if it was on the up and up, there wouldn't be the need for all the secrecy behind the Council for National Policy. They don't give out their members. They don't give out their talking points or what their meetings are about. And they have all these conservatives. Pretty much every mainstream conservative has either spoken at or is a member of the Council for National Policy. And you don't even know anything about them. So I think that's all that needs to be said about that. Now we look here, we look at the Scaife or Scaife family coming out of the Mellon Scaife fortune. It was one of the initial funders of the secret right, the Council for National Policy that we just mentioned, along with the blasphemous Reverend Sun Myung Moon of the Unification Church and the Unification Empire. This guy, he's dead now, but he was filthy rich, and now his family continues the legacy. Why would the Council for National Policy, who were filled with guys like Tim LaHaye and all these Christian conservatives take money from Reverend Sun Myung Moon, who was a blasphemer, who said he was God and that Jesus Christ failed his mission, and so he was going to fulfill it. Another connection you see here is the Koch brothers and the Mercers, who also fund the Convention of States. They fund the Council for National Policy. They fund Cato. They fund Reason. They fund Heritage. Pretty much every conservative or quasi-libertarian NGO or foundation, they fund them. Let's see who else they fund. Let's see, in 2021, Scafi donated 400000 to the Reason Foundation, 180000 to Cato, 350000 to the Daily Caller News Foundation. I didn't know such a thing existed, but again, these guys form these foundations that are tax-exempt so they can, I think, funnel money and also just get a power over policy. And guess how much Scafi gave to the Heritage Foundation? $800,000. That's a lot of money. And about as much to the American Enterprise Institute, or AEI, another one of these Warhawk NGOs. So I'll put that in my show notes. It says scafi.com, Sarah, 2021 PDF. The Mercer Foundation, I mentioned just a second ago, also a premier donor to the Council for National Policy, Cato, Media Research Center, Heritage, Federalist Society, and Reason Foundation. You can see that under Source Watch. You'll see that in the show notes. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, in 2016, Mercer gave some $25 million to conservative groups and candidates, including President Trump. Last year, this was in 2017, this article was written, last year he was also one of the 10 biggest political donors in the country alongside better-known figures such as George Soros, Sheldon Adelson, and Mike Bloomberg. And we can see pictures of Rockin' Ronnie DeSantis hanging out with Sheldon Adelson. That was actually from Cato.org, so good for them for actually exposing that, even though they've taken money from them as well. Interesting, huh? You know, the Cato Institute, I was looking at an article by Forbes from like 2012, and the Cato funders even included, of course, the Open Society Foundation, George Soros, which I've talked about 
before because I saw back in I think 2019 he'd given them maybe a hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but this was ten years ago he had given them money eighty five thousand I think that year. Carnegie had given them money, and the Ford Foundation had given them money, the Cato Institute. Those groups are supposed to hate each other, but yet they do not because they have similar goals. I'm telling you guys, they have similar goals. You look here at sourcewatch.org again and the Cato Institute, and you look up 79 other foundations who funded Cato. Really interesting read, by the way, because it's not just conservative or libertarian-ish outfits that support Cato. Cato actually has shareholders, and there's another article in Forbes about that. Not that I trust Forbes either, but I think you have to take the information where you can find it. See the Convention of States and the Council for National Policy, like I said before, directly linked to this American Legislative Executive Council. Dr. Adrian Moore, Vice President of Public Policy of Reason Foundation and Reason Magazine, of course, is an advisor to the American Legislative Executive Council's Commerce, Insurance, and Economic Development Task Force. Reason Foundation representatives have also advised ALEC task forces on issues such as state budgets and health reform. It says here, the Reason Foundation's Director of Government Affairs, Mike Flynn, was previously policy director for ALEC. Surely that's not the same Mike Flynn. I don't think it is. Charlie Kirk's Freedom Works is also a big funder of ALEC. And if I left that out earlier, Charlie Kirk is one of the main pushers also of the Convention of States, a Council for National Policy board member. So the conservative, you know, the top conservatives are very controlled under this secretive Council for National Policy, which is one of the reasons why my friend John Brisson makes such a big deal about it. Because like I said, if it was on the up and up, there wouldn't be all of this secrecy. So I think it's a way to control the right and keep any real patriots from ever taking control and really going in there and cleaning house, cleaning the swamp. While we're talking about it, I know we're getting away from the Convention of States. We're going to get back into that. But these are the people who support them and the organizations who support the Convention of States. And I think that's one way we can definitely tell what they're all about. Look here, Alec. Alec's alumni... Governor Christy Nome, who has spoken, of course, before several Jewish agencies. She's been approved. She's been approved by APAC. Don't worry. Marsha Blackburn from my state, con woman, I believe. Lindsey Graham, who is on the board of directors of the International Republican Institute, which is also, again, I know I'm repeating myself a lot here, but also one of the arms of the National Endowment for Democracy. He kind of took over for John McCain, even though he's not the head. He took over for McCain, I think, as far as ideology. Marco Rubio is an alumni of ALEC, of course. I'm just looking up the shady ones. House of Representatives, many of these I don't know. Mark Green, Ken Grothman, Barry Loudermilk. There are a ton of them, and they're all Republican, of course. Bill Posey. So it's in the show notes again, and you can check it out yourself. And people wonder, why are you going so hard on the conservatives? You're not a conservative. You're a liberal. Because 
you know, we're trained to think that if you don't go along with one or the other all the way, then you have to be from the opposition. And that's such bullshit. That is one of the reasons we're so damn divided and we don't hold any of these awful people accountable. And, you know, it's like beating a dead horse. I talk about that all the time, so I won't go into that right now. But I'm going to play you now a little video that explains why this convention of states, this con-con is dangerous and where it could lead because we're being told it's all about just keeping government accountable. And if you look at the convention of states, their social media, it's all scaremongering using the Democrats. Of course, and they're horrible. We know that the Democrats are horrible, but the enemy of my enemy is not always my friend. And I think that they'll use what we hate as well as what we like to control us and get their way. And it's no different with this organization here. Hello, I'm Mark Stubbs, a former member of the Idaho Legislature. Even as a practicing lawyer, I never had the opportunity to take a close look at the process by which we propose and ratify amendments to the United States Constitution. You probably have not had to do so either until now. When I did examine the process, I learned some startling things. America has come dangerously close to requiring Congress to call a convention for proposing amendments to the Constitution. If only a handful of additional state legislatures apply to Congress for a convention, the machinery of a convention will be set in motion. Once this machinery has begun to operate, as former Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court Warren Burger has written, it will be too late to stop it. There is still time to step back from the brink of a convention, but it will require your attention and your action. To help preserve the system of government and the guarantees of personal liberties which we all enjoy and which we sadly have come to take for granted, please give your closest attention to this message which Mark Bork has presented just for state legislators. When the founders wrote the Constitution, they devoted all of Article 5 to the process of amendments. Two separate and distinct methods of proposing amendments to that Constitution were provided. Those proposed by Congress and those proposed by a special convention called for the purpose. Throughout the history of America, all amendments to the Constitution have been proposed by Congress. The convention method of amendment has never been used. What is an Article V convention anyway? Congress must call a constitutional convention, commonly called a CONCON, when the legislatures of two-thirds of the states apply for one. Once the critical mass of 34 states has applied, Congress has no choice in the matter. The convention has to be called. The role of state legislatures in amending the United States Constitution is very limited. As a legislator, you have broad powers to deal with matters pertaining to the laws and the governing of your state. But your powers in the process of amending the federal Constitution are of a different kind. The Constitution grants powers to state legislatures to do something which is beyond the usual scope of their authority, the power to set in motion a process which can change the supreme law of the land. This extraordinary power is limited to the precise wording in Article 5. Let's take a close look at Article 5. As a legislator, you are given the powers to apply to Congress to call a convention, if you deem one to be necessary. But you are given no power to decide what topics the convention will consider, no power to write the desired amendment or amendments, and no power 
to say that the application is ineffective if a convention might violate any restrictions and limitations which you may want to include in your application. Article 5 clearly gives the power to propose amendments exclusively to the convention. This is explicit in the wording of the article, which sets up a three-step process. Step 1. The legislatures of the states apply to Congress to call a convention. Step 2. Congress calls the convention while deciding other details, such as where the convention may meet, how delegates are to be paid, and how much, how many delegates there will be, and how they are chosen. Note that nothing in the Constitution requires nor guarantees that delegates to a CONCON will be elected by the people. Congress is given a free hand to determine the method of selecting these delegates. Congress itself could choose to make the appointment of delegates. Congress could provide that the state legislatures appoint delegates. In short, Congress is given a blank check to determine how convention delegates are to be chosen. It could provide for their election, but it is not required that they do so. Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Arthur Goldberg, has warned the nation that this absence of any guarantee of electing delegates could put the convention within the control of special interest groups. Writing for the Miami Herald, he stated, quote, the absence of any mechanism to ensure representative selection of delegates could put a runaway convention in the hands of single issue groups whose self-interest may be contrary to our national well-being, ending the quote. Congress also has the power to determine how many delegates each state will have. But note again, the Constitution does not guarantee that every state is entitled to at least one delegate. Step three, the call is for a convention for proposing amendments to the Constitution. This language clearly states that only the convention is authorized to determine how many amendments will be proposed and what subjects will be addressed in those amendments. During the first 100 years of the Republic, applications for a convention did not try to tell the convention which amendments to propose. That is, they were general calls for a convention. These early applications left the determination of the content of the amendments to the convention which would propose them. In these early years, state legislators knew and respected the fact that only the convention could decide what amendments would say. As time passed, the state legislators of America lost sight of the clear language of the Constitution. Later, they attempted to dictate to a convention what amendments it could propose. They did this by stating in their applications that they sought only a limited convention with authority to propose an amendment on a single subject. By issuing single-issue applications, legislatures sought to turn an Article V convention into a rubber stamp body a body which could do only what the applications allowed. These unenforceable limitations defied the intended purpose of the convention, which was to deliberate and decide what amendments, if any, it would propose. The wording of Article 5 even authorizes a convention to meet and decide that it will propose no amendments whatever and simply adjourn, if that is what the delegates want or if the delegates decide that some changes in the Constitution are in order, they and only they are empowered to determine the number and content of the amendments. 
This is a far cry from the crippled convention which would be created if state legislatures could dictate to the convention what it must do. Let me read an article here from Camp Constitution on the Convention of States. It says plainly, the Convention of States or the CONCON is one of the biggest political scams of our time, fueled by dark money laundering through C3 organizations. As they ramp up their push for CONCON legislation in 2018, they will seek to avoid hearings that could expose the dark money behind the scheme. Each year, Mark Meckler files his IRS Form 990 at virtually the latest time possible at or near the extended deadline of November 15th for the prior year. This concealed for nearly an additional year how his C3 organization paid $108,200 to Michael Ferris in 2015 for PR services. PR services, question mark. The lead advocate for Convention of States legislation, Michael Ferris, was supposedly in the business of merely providing PR services to an obscure C3 organization. To the tune of $108,200? That is an absurd characterization of Ferris's work. Meckler himself raked in $220,200, and even more from a related organization, from that same obscure C3 in 2015. Yet he has been spending his time going around the country demanding that state legislatures enact Convention of States, which is not a legitimate priority for a C3 organization. Tom Coburn's massive compensation is even more cleverly concealed. He failed to fulfill his obligation to voters to complete his Senate term and instead quit early to make big bucks from the CONCON scheme. Jim DeMint, who also quit the Senate early, is now being funded through a new C3 front group. The obscure C3 that funded Meckler and Ferris in 2015 was the John Hancock Committee for the States, which claims on its form that it is doing business as the Citizens for Self-Governance. The Koch Network deliberately makes it very difficult to trace their dark money. Two of the Koch's biggest issues are amnesty for certain illegal aliens, to get the cheap labor for their companies, and expanding legalized marijuana, which was a libertarian goal back when David Koch ran as the libertarian candidate for vice president. They are working with billionaires on the left on both issues, and this is what their secret agenda for a constitutional convention to limit federal powers means. Less border control and fewer limits on illegal drugs. No thank you. Well, I think it means just opening up more opportunities for their businesses and their cronies to be able to get more power over the Constitution. The funding of the Convention of States legislation is deceitful and probably illegal in laundering dark money through C3 organizations to push for legislation. Let's get Meckler, Coburn, Ferris, and DeMint answering questions under oath about this at a legislative hearing this year and watch them skip town instead. Let's demand full committee hearings before any votes are taken in 2018. I just wanted to throw that in there because there's not a lot of information from the right but I think we need that accountability. 
One of the biggest obstacles to the deep state's plans has been our U.S. Constitution that drastically limits the power and the scope of the federal government. And uh, for, for many years, they actually used liberals to try to advance the agenda of having a constitutional convention. They, they promoted this from the left wing side. Well, that didn't work. And so now they have started targeting conservatives. Now, I want to start off uh, at the beginning by being clear that I know many wonderful conservatives, liberty minded, God fearing patriots who love this country, who love our Constitution, who, in my view, quite unfortunately, have been sucked into this constitutional convention idea. Um, it's uh, very, very sad to see, and we absolutely must uh, resist it. But, you know, I want to be clear that I don't believe that everybody who's bought into this agenda is uh, is an, an agent of the deep state or even a dupe of the deep state. It's just, uh, you know, they haven't heard the full truth about what's going on. All right. Well, one of the things I want to show you is that deep state characters are absolutely involved in pushing this agenda. They call it a different thing. an Article 5 convention, a convention of states. And, you know, for all I know, the, the leaders of this movement may even be well-meaning. I, I have my suspicions. I've heard uh, some of their key leaders say things that are absolutely untrue uh, and things that are demonstrably untrue to the point where they're either completely ignorant and have no business being involved in politics or they're being dishonest. And, you know, that's a, a very serious problem. We know who the father of lies is. But I want to start by showing you um, just a little bit from the 990s, you know, the, the, the forms that organizations are required to file. Uh, we know quite a bit about what's going on there. One of the things we don't know is where all these millions of dollars in funding for this agenda are coming from. Uh, we've looked through their form 990s and we don't know. We know there's massive money and I mean massive money. They're paying huge sums to people to get on board this agenda. Uh, I want to show you one very clear example. They actually targeted Rush Limbaugh. They were talking about raising millions of dollars to get Rush Limbaugh to endorse their idea. Now, fortunately, Rush Limbaugh said no, but I want to show you this clip real quick so you can get a sense of what's going on. He says, is it time to talk with Rush and get him on board? I'll tell you, Dave, we've reached out to Rush. Let me tell you how it works for Rush. It's $2.25 million commitment just to get him to talk about talking about something. And we had a donor who stepped up who was willing to do a big chunk of that. And we went to Rush's people, and Rush's people thought he would be interested in this. We were really excited. We thought we were going to get with Rush. And Rush said, mm, just not on my radar right now. All right. Uh, another individual who got a uh, big payout from the uh, Convention of States was Mark Levin. We're talking upwards of six hundred thousand uh, dollars. Another individual was Jim DeMint, the former U.S. senator from South Carolina. Uh, he went on to go lead the Heritage Foundation, was ousted from there. And uh, he actually said something interesting. He was at a Republican meeting and he said publicly that he was not being paid. He was just an unpaid volunteer for the Convention of States movement. Watch this. But there's another thing I've talked to this group about before. I just want to give you a quick update. Uh, it's the Convention of States, I mean, the Constitutional Article 5. I don't work for these guys. These don't, they don't pay me. I, I do it as a volunteer because I can pay for 20 years in Washington. They're going to keep spending until they run out. So you just heard Jim DeMint say that he was not being paid. Well, he was being paid. We know from his 990 forums that in 2017, 2018, he was paid almost $150,000. Now, that may not be a lot in the circles that Jim DeMint runs in, but it's several times what an average American earns in a year. And it's certainly not nothing. It's certainly not an unpaid volunteer. We did an article about it at The New American, and uh, we reached out to uh, former Senator DeMint for comment. He did not respond. 
on. And then after we published, uh, one of his aides sent us a note saying that, oh, no, what uh, what Demint said was totally accurate because he was paid in 2017 and 2018, but in 2019, he wasn't paid. So then he was an unpaid volunteer, which, uh, you know, that's interesting. But uh, we see this pattern that just recurs over and over again. One of the big uh, conservative superstars that the COS people constantly claim endorsed their idea for having a convention of states or constitutional convention was uh, the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, true patriot. Uh, but despite what they claim, he absolutely did not endorse their agenda. At one time, he you know he made a, a throwaway comment where you know maybe it could be a good idea just to scare the politicians. But later, he very clearly and very unequivocally said, "No, this is a very bad idea to have a constitutional convention." I want to show you this clip. Check it out. Um, I, I certainly would not want a constitutional convention. I mean, whoa. <laughs> Who knows what would come out of that? And I mean, folks, again, the, the pattern that's so typical with the deep state where lies and, and obfuscation and dirty tricks are used is just constant. I want to show you an interview I did with a friend of mine, uh, Representative Dorothy Moon from Idaho. Uh, she, she got all these petitions signed by people that she knew asking her to endorse a convention of states. She said, wait a minute, I, I know this person, right? They're, they're friends of mine. They're members of the John Birch Society. They didn't sign this, called them up. And it turns out, no, no, actually, they did not sign. Watch. And so I started calling them, and sure enough, they had not signed them. And that was alarming to me that we, we now see fraud occurring on the proponents for a convention of states, and how many other letters have gone out. So this was just specifically to my District 8, um, and so by the time I'd gone through several of the letters, I noticed of the 110 that I received, and I didn't call on all of them because I'm thinking that, uh, they're all fraudulent as far as I'm concerned. So who's putting fake signatures on petitions? And why would they do that, right? Why would you do that? So that was Alex Newman from Behind the Deep State, his podcast, and he goes on to say that Jink Uger from the Young Turks, I think that's how you say his name, is also behind a convention of states for finance, campaign finance reasons. And we'd all like to get the money out of politics. But I think we should be aware that possibly there are ulterior motives. Now, maybe Jink doesn't have ulterior motives, but he has his wolf pack and other left-wing groups who are also pushing for this con-con. And I think we need to look back at the first of the show where we talked about how it was a left-wing push for a con-con to create a world federalist government or select states to be a part of a world federalist government. And there's been a push for this world federalism and this global governance via the UN, the League of Nations, and other means for a very long time. So... There could be other reasons behind the Convention of States. And even if there's not, I think that we need to be alert of what's going on and the possibilities, the negative consequences, possible consequences of a Convention of States. And while we're talking about Convention of States and Mark Meckler, who is the leader of the cause or the Convention of States, he's also leading this organization called Citizens for Self-Governance. Unfortunately, anytime you see liberty, self-governance, freedom, any of that stuff, you have to look closer because they use those titles because they know people will automatically trust them. But I just wanted to point this out because this is one of the first things I found when I looked up Mark Meckler. Jewish Americans must take a stand now. Jewish Americans have a choice to make. They can take a stand against the radical anti-Semitism that has infected the Democratic Party and led to the current spate of violent attacks in major American cities, 
or they can lie down and submit to the hate and the abuse that has plagued Jewish people all over the world. As a Jewish American and a Christian myself, I know what I'm going to do, but not everyone agrees with me. And then he goes on about the Biden administration being anti-Semitic, which is such a laugh. Most of his important appointees are Jewish. Of course, we've talked about this. And of course, he's a Zionist, and he admitted he's a Zionist on more than one occasion. So this is just really what I was talking about. I think in the last Those We Don't Speak Of episode, they try to convince the left that the right is anti-Semitic, and they try to convince the right that the left is anti-Semitic. So they'll both go out of their way to support the organizations on their side that lead towards Zionism. And that's just a fact. And what's funny is I didn't even realize that Meckler was Jewish, but he says he is there now. So I think that uh, we see a real pattern there, you know, with Prager and with Shapiro, with Dave Rubin and the others. And I think that uh, you just can't overlook it. I mean... Most people will, but we're not going to do that here any longer. And if I didn't mention it, I may have, but Meckler is also a contributor to Breitbart. And we know that that is a Zionist organization as well. It doesn't mean everything they write is wrong, but they come from that side of things and they have that bias. So it looks like Glenn Beck, the popular radio show host, has turned his back on the Convention of States. He used to be a supporter, and now he says for religious reasons, he can no longer support a convention of states. Now, I don't know if that's actually the true case or not, but I think it's worth mentioning because we need as many big, loud, popular voices as we can to speak out against this because, again, too many shady people are pushing for it. I have been a supporter of uh, the Article 5 Convention of States, I've been a pretty big supporter, vocal supporter. I'm reversing that today because after some real thought and prayer, we are not the people to open up this sacred document. We are not the people. That was a God-inspired document that was divinely written, and you can read it from I don't know how many founders. Benjamin Franklin even said that. The very hand of God was involved in the writing of that document. Do you believe that we could send delegates to a convention today that would have that kind of inspiration, that when they got to an impasse, somebody would be there like Ben Franklin that would say, Let's pause and all go to church and pray. And they didn't politic, they prayed. I I am not for opening that constitution anymore. And one of the other articles that I pulled up by Meckler almost immediately was from the Convention of States, How a Trip to Israel Changed Mark Meckler's Worldview, Cause Action. You think about the Zionist connection, the Council for National Policy connection, the Coors family connection, the Mercer family connection, the Scafie family connection, the Alec connection. I mean, you see who's actually pushing the Convention of States, and you understand that it's dangerous because it's not what it appears to be, and the people who are pushing it are not what they appear to be. Certainly, they're not America first. That doesn't mean everyone affiliated with the organization is bad. A lot of times people join these organizations and don't know really what all's going on. They've been blindsided. They're blinded by party politics and 
They believe things that are not right. They're not true. They've never heard anything real in a way that they can kind of parse and accept. So they just go along with these thinking they're doing the right thing. But a lot of these people are way too smart not to know what's actually going on. Quickly, I want to look at an article from The Hill by David A. Super on the Convention of States. He says, as we careen from one partisan confrontation to another, it might surprise many people to learn that some people actually think that this is a good time to open up our fundamental law. But yes, several groups on both the left and the right are busily working to persuade states to pass resolutions asking Congress to call a convention under Article 5 of the Constitution. Now, this is back from 2018. Now, it says here, Mossad's, M-O-S-A-D-S, I think Mossad as Israeli intelligence has two S's, so I'm not sure what that means, but one group seeking a convention in the hope that it would produce a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution claims, using highly dubious math, to have resolutions from 28 of the 34 states required to compel Congress to call such a convention. Another group, the Convention of States, the COSP, seeks more broadly to strip the federal government of power. The American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, is supporting this effort. A liberal group, Wolfpack, has persuaded a handful of blue states to request an Article 5 convention with the hope that it will reform campaign finance law. Much of the opposition to calling an Article 5 convention results from the danger that such a convention could veer in dangerous and unpredictable directions, especially in this toxic political atmosphere. Recognizing these concerns about a runaway Article 5 convention, COSP and ALEC have urged states to pass laws purporting to direct delegates how to vote and providing for those delegates recall should the delegates disobey the legislature's instructions constraining how their delegates could vote. These bills are a sham that do nothing more to reduce the dangers of calling an Article 5 convention. Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution provides two methods of adopting amendments. First, Congress may, by two-thirds majority in both houses, propose amendments to the states. Second, if two-thirds of the states ask Congress to call a constitutional convention, Congress must do so. We learned this earlier, but we'll go over it again. Every amendment to date has been proposed and ratified through the first method. These groups are seeking to persuade state legislatures to take the country into a more uncharted territory of an Article 5 convention. Nothing in Article 5 or anywhere else in the Constitution authorizes Congress, state legislatures, or anyone else to limit the agenda of an Article 5 convention. And even if they did, the Supreme Court has made clear that the process of amending the Constitution is a political question into which the courts would not intervene. Once delegates convene, they are answerable only to themselves. That's an important part to remember. The product that emerges from an Article 5 convention could be radically different from what those asking it to be called may have envisioned, just as the Philadelphia Convention of 1787 departed sharply from its mandates to propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. Convention of States proposed delegate constraining laws will not work for several reasons. First, nothing in the Constitution gives state legislatures the power to control their state's delegates any more than the state legislatures can control their state's members of Congress. Once selected, 
delegates to an Article V convention become federal officials with authority derived from Article V and not from the states. Another important thing to remember. In Bush versus Palm Beach County canvassing Boulevard, the U.S. Supreme Court held that when state officials derive their powers from the U.S. Constitution, federal law can constrain state officials' actions. Second, even if such state laws are valid and binding, no one is or can be empowered to enforce them. Article 5 limits Congress's role to calling a convention once a sufficient number of states have made valid requests. It would have no authority to oust delegates even if they wanted to do so. As noted, the Supreme Court has made clear that such matters as political questions that federal courts may not decide. States' courts have no authority to intervene in a federal constitutional convention. And COS is making it out like we're going to give power back to the states by doing this. I'm telling you, these guys are not to be trusted. I would say the word traitor comes to mind. Finally, even if such laws were valid and enforceable, the convention would almost certainly finish its work before the laws could be invoked. Particularly if delegates are aware of such state laws, they could readily arrange for all matters before the convention to be decided by a single up or down vote at the end of its proceedings. Negotiators on complex matters routinely operate on the basis that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. This leads to a single large package that is approved as a block at the very end. At that point, the convention would disband and any recall of delegates would be meaningless. And finishing, calling an Article V convention is reckless, especially at this divisive moment in our nation's political history. Nothing these groups propose does anything even to mitigate the risks that a convention would bring. State legislatures should not delude themselves that the dangers of an Article V convention can somehow be contained. Again, that was David A. Super from the Hill. Since ALEC is behind the Council for National Policy, the Convention of States, and all these other groups, and nearly all the top people in the Convention of States are connected to ALEC, let's read a little bit about what Kelly Nelson has to say about ALEC. Having witnessed the difficulties and dangers experienced by the first convention, I would tremble for the result of the second. That was James Madison, father of the Constitution and fourth president of the United States. All men having power ought to be distrusted to a certain degree. James Madison's speech at the Constitutional Convention, July 11, 1787. Ready to do this? The majority of Americans do not understand that our representative republic is under attack and has been for decades. As Ben Franklin said, a republic if you can keep it. Basically, we lost it a long time ago, but we cannot afford to lose the 1787 Constitution or our liberties will be a thing of the past. Who is the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC? It is a think tank whose members consist of state legislatures and corporations who gather together behind closed doors to write legislation for the states. Dark money funds ALEC, especially the Koch brothers, but more on them in another article. I think I actually said Koch brothers earlier in the show. I always do that. ALEC has long been promoting an Article 5 constitutional convention. 
Alec's membership is 95% corporate, along with 2,500 of the 7,500 legislatures from every state. This is where the state legislation originates. Alec founder Paul Weirich, one of the number one movers and shakers of the right-wing Council for National Policy. Albeit there were others with more money and more power, the Coors family and the planned parenthood promoter Richard Mellon Scafe, or Scafe, depending on how you pronounce that. Like I said, the Scafe family financially backs nearly every conservative or quasi-libertarian think tank and policy institute, including Heritage, Reason, Cato. Continuing here, Scafe has allegedly funded ALEC to the tune of more than $7 million. Now, this is back in 2018, so it's been more since then. One must remember that Scafe funded both sides of the aisle and was connected to the Rockefeller Chase Mellon Bank. See, Chase Mellon, you can look back to Richard Mellon Scafe, so... This is where that family money comes from. The Council for National Policy was founded in 1981 by Pat Robertson, Tim LaHaye, Nelson Bunker Hunt, and twice tried for murder, Texas oil man T. Cullen Davis. This is the group, the CNP, that controls all your top conservatives and has for a long time. Wyrick was the grand poobah of the CNP. He co-founded the Heritage Foundation, the Free Congress Foundation, and the American Legislative Exchange Council, and was the first president or director of all three. He also once served as advisor to former Russian President Boris Yeltsin of the Chechnyan genocide fame. He wrote about it in an article in the Heritage affiliate Town Hall magazine. In 1987, Wyrick wrote an article entitled, A Conservative's Lament which showed his unabashed yearning for a parliamentary form of government for America and his strong belief that America needed a shadow government, which is what we seem to have with the Council on Foreign Relations. And about 30 or 40 other top policy institutes, Aspen Institute, Atlantic Council, CNP, Trilateral Commission, I could go on and on, America Enterprise Institute. Anyway, Back in 1992, when recently deceased Ross Perot came on the scene, he was gung-ho for a con-con. Like Wyrick, he stated emphatically that we needed a parliamentary government and bragged that his people could get the remaining states needed for a con-con in their sleep. Phyllis Shafley's eagles and fellow patriots stopped it. Alec history, she says. Alec is a corporate bill mill. It's not just a lobby or a front group. ALEC is one of the most powerful unelected councils in the country. Note that unelected councils and task forces and public-private partnerships, etc., are forms of government and used in democratic, socialist, and communist countries. ALEC first came into being in 1973 in Chicago as the Conservative Caucus of State Legislatures. In 1975, with support of the American Conservative Union, ALEC registered as a federal nonprofit agency. Through the corporate-funded council, global corporations and state politicians vote behind closed doors to try to rewrite state laws that govern your rights. These so-called model bills reach into almost every area of American life and more often than not directly benefit huge corporations. In Alex's own words, corporations have a voice and a vote 
on specific changes to the law that are then proposed in your state and sometimes in the federal legislature. The Madison Group, the predecessor to the state policy network, similar to the many heritage foundations in each state, I didn't know that, was launched by ALEC and housed in the Chicago-based Heartland Institute, so says a 1991 report by the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy. The Heartland Institute was and is a member of ALEC. The Institute has also functioned as a publisher and a promoter of ALEC's model legislation, including a new Article 5 constitutional convention. Heartland is funded by the Koch brothers, David and Charles, the former being a member of the globalist Aspen Institute. Remember Aspen Institute's former director was none other than Maurice Strong, author and promoter of the UN Agenda 21, also a Club of Rome member. NCRP also reported that the Madison Group's annual meeting was, at the time, sponsored by Heritage Foundation and the Free Congress Foundation, led by Paul Weyrich. One has to remember that the Heritage Foundation fellow and CFR member Richard V. Allen drafted NAFTA, and Stuart M. Butler wrote the monograph for Heritage promoting the individual mandate in health care. says here, corporations write the bills. Corporations hand to the state legislatures their wish list of legislation to benefit their bottom lines. The membership of ALEC is 98% corporate, and the corporate membership is the one that funds almost all of ALEC's operations. They have bought their way into the process by which corporate lobbyists and special interest reps vote with the elected officials to approve model bills. ALEC's legislative leaders are responsible for getting the bills introduced and passed. They introduce and carry the bills in their state houses as their own brilliant ideas. As an example, the immigration bill SB 1070 was written by ALEC and carried by Russell Pierce word for word to Arizona. Private prison corporations had a huge part in ALEC's crafting of SB 1070. Busting balls here. The legislature never disclosed that corporations wrote and vetted these bills along with fellow politicians behind closed doors at ALEC meetings. So everyone who is a member of ALEC is influencing not only state bills, but most likely federal bills as well, written by corporations with vested interests, along with lobbyists and state representatives. Now let's look at ALEC's corporate donors. Remember, ALEC is one of the biggest proponents of this convention of states. ALEC has a huge list of corporate donors and corporate members, and here is a state-by-state partial list of politicians that are known to be involved in or previously involved with ALEC. Not all dues-paying members of ALEC are included because ALEC does not post its full list, but the list includes politicians who have been in leadership roles in ALEC as a member of a task force or other publicly known roles. It also includes politicians who have been featured speakers or who have accepted awards at ALEC meetings. Now, she has a list here. And I'm not going to go through the list because it's so long. But let's do look at the ALEC Award winners. President Ronald Reagan, George Herbert Walker Bush, Margaret Thatcher, Bobby Jindal, Rick Perry, Tommy Thompson, Governor John Engler, Michigan, Mary Fallon, Oklahoma, Secretary William J. Bennett, Senator Jack Kemp, Congressman Tom Feeney, Congressman Mark Foley, 
It says, in addition to these politicians, Alec has given awards to corporate CEOs such as Richard DeVos and J. Van Andel of Amway, Charles G. Koch, and David H. Koch of Koch Industries. Okay, featured speakers, David Horowitz, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Dan Quayle, John Ashcroft, Newt Gingrich, Trent Lott, Gary Bauer, George Allen, John Keel, George Pataki, Bob Dole, Milton Friedman at the 33rd Annual ALEC Conference, and Stephen Moore. Okay, and I said I wouldn't, but let's look at just a few of the prominent alumni. John Boehner, who was a speaker. Dennis Hastert, who was speaker. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. This is chair of ALEC's Private Enterprise Board of Directors. Speaker Tom DeLay. White House Chief of Staff Andrew Card for George W. Bush. Don Nichols of Oklahoma, he was a senator. Congressman Joe Wilson, that's the guy that called Obama a liar. Maybe he has some good traits, right? Representative Dan Burton, Indiana. Senator Jim Inhofe, Oklahoma, we may have mentioned him before. And there's a whole bunch of others, tons of governors. Scott Walker, of course, of Wisconsin. John Kasich of Ohio. And look at this, international ALEC partners, okay, Reem Bodron of Jordan, Richard Ashworth, UK, Corey Bernardi, Australia, Adam Bielan, Poland, Martin Kellanon, United Kingdom, Philip Clays, Belgium, uh, just a bunch here. We got the more UK, Sweden, bunch of UK, Pakistan, Poland, Czech Republic, former Defense Secretary, Dr. Liam Fox of the United Kingdom. This goes on and on, and it will be in the show notes if you want to look further. I I always invite people to look at this stuff for themselves because they oftentimes will find things that I didn't have time to find. Continuing this article, in the mid-1990s, the Church of Scientology became one of Alex's members and underwriters for the apparent purpose of interacting with state lawmakers on mental health care issues. Isn't that rich? Here's an excerpt from a 1998 fundraising letter written by Bruce Wiseman, the president of the Citizens Commission on Human Rights International, a highly controversial anti-psychiatry front group of the Church of Scientology. Wiseman writes the following, ALEC is a national organization made up of legislatures from every state as well as some federal legislatures who meet and draft model legislation for every state. The return for that has been enormous. CCHR has worked its way up the conditions at ALEC and recently got an article published by ALEC in opposition to mandated mental health parity, which went to the key state legislatures who deal with health issues in their respective states. In addition, the ALEC membership has opened up the door to meeting numerous legislators and other opinion leaders from around the country. Okay, and unquote. Alex exists to maximize the profits of their corporate kings and financiers, especially Coke Industries, ExxonMobil, Pharma, spelled P-H-R-M-A, Altria, and Pfizer, who pay upwards of $25,000 just to become members. Now, that's something we'll look at later on as some of these big corporations that belong to Alec. Alec has long promoted an Article 5 constitutional convention using the excuse that we need a balanced budget amendment, the same excuse used in the late 70s and defeated by Phyllis Shafley's Eagles and fellow patriots. If you've read Publius Holda's articles on the same, here and here, then you understand what a terrible danger the BBA actually is to our Constitution. 
It's got the links for that. Alec even produced a resolution for limitations on authority of delegates to a convention for proposing amendments, Article 5, United States of America Constitution. Alec claims this resolution will curtail and eliminate the possibility of a runaway convention. The resolution restricts delegates to work on only those amendments authorized in their legislative instructions and calls for the immediate recall of any delegate that works on unauthorized amendments. This is total balderdash. <laughs> you know you're old when you're using that word. Once a convention is opened, all is fair game. And I think that's the biggest, biggest concern there for sure. And finishing up this part here of the article... A 43-page handbook written by Alex Constitutional Scholar Robert G. Nadelson entitled Promoting Constitutional Amendments by a Convention of the States was provided to their mostly Republican members along with model legislation to carry back to their states. This booklet is full of spins, lies, and misdirection. It claims that the states must exercise control as given to them by the founders, that they must move quickly, that the state legislatures will have complete control over the process and will answer to the state's legislatures they present. This is far from the truth. There is no provision in Article 5 empowering state legislatures to choose the delegates to a constitutional convention or to limit the scope of a con-con. There are no rules, no regulations, and certainly no instructions. I think it's pretty clear, guys. ALEC, the Council for National Policy, and COS does not have the average American's best interests in mind. This is a power grab, and it's being sold by the likes of Mark Levin, Ben Shapiro, Dennis Prager, Sean Hannity, you name it. And with all the other things going on, maybe it seems like a weird time to bring this up, but this may be the one that we're not seeing. You know, the old military saying, you never see the one that gets you. This may be the one that gets us. And I wouldn't even be surprised if there's not a connection to the World Economic Forum. A lot of these big corporations belong to the World Economic Forum. And I haven't looked at the full ALEC list yet, but I would not be surprised whatsoever. Really concerned about the direction our nation would go if we opened up the Constitution to changes. In fact, I'm going to give you a quote from President James Garfield. This is one of my favorite. He says that now more than ever before, the people are responsible for the character of their Congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt, it's because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. If that body be intelligent, brave, and pure, it's because the people demand these high qualities to represent them in the national legislature. To me, that's a litmus test. Where are we today as a nation? Do we demand ignorance, recklessness, or tolerate ignorance, ignorance, recklessness, and corruption? How's Congress doing today? I think that describes them pretty well. And so what the American people tolerate is my biggest concern. That as we see massive changes in the Constitution coming out of a convention, will the American people stand up against loss of liberty, or will they embrace it? And I think what we've seen in Congress is a good representation of where we would go today if we were to hit that reset button. Now, that's another point with this that I've heard is that, well, Congress can already oppose or can already create amendments. And so what's yeah. to stop them from already doing what they want to do? And isn't it good to give the people of the, of the United States the power as well to engage in that? What would you say to that argument? Yeah. And really, there is a strong similarity there. Congress is essentially, they often refer to as a sitting constitutional convention themselves. 
Madison differentiated between them. Again, as I mentioned, as he was putting out his opposition to an Article 5 convention, he said that in his view, the convention would feel much greater latitude in making sweeping changes to the Constitution than Congress would, mm -hmm. which is why he said Congress is the safer mode. Congress already pretty much does whatever they want to regardless of what the Constitution says for the most part. And the only reason they get away with that is we the people don't hold them to it. I would say that they don't have to play by the rules as long as we the people don't know the rules. When we do, and, and this goes back to some of my past history, when I first moved to Montana about a decade ago, I organized a couple hundred people and we started holding our congressman accountable to his voting as it squared with the Constitution. At the time, his constitutional rating, so to say, was somewhere around 40 to 60%. He was always right in the middle. About half the time he'd followed the Constitution, half the time he wouldn't. Within four months, he was at 80%, and thereafter he stayed at 90% because we started pushing on him on, you better be following the Constitution as written. doesn't matter if the Supreme Court has come up with alternate explanations. We want you to follow the Constitution as written, as intended, and he almost immediately began to do so. This is what I refer to as the power of 500. With just a few hundred people putting pressure on their congressmen, we can get them following the Constitution again. And this is really what the founders intended for us to do. If you look through the Federalist Papers, in, in the Federalist Papers, one of the most common themes that was addressed there was, what should we do if the federal government ever oversteps their bounds, begins to ignore the Constitution? You look at Federalist 16, 26, and 33, Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton talking about the power that we, the people, and we, the states, have to push back against federal tyranny. Madison picks it up in Federalist 44 and 46, 46 especially. And what's interesting is in all of those documents where they're talking about what to do to push back against federal tyranny, they never mention Article 5. In fact, then you go on to Federalist 48 and 49, Madison directly addresses that. In 49, he asks, is it appropriate to use a convention to address breaches in the Constitution when the federal government ignores it? And his answer is absolutely not. Federalist 48, he says it's merely a parchment barrier. If they're breaking through ignoring parchment barriers, making more parchment barriers is not the solution. We need to enforce it because paper is not enforcing itself. That's the real founder's solution. They talk about we, when they ignore the Constitution, we need to be enforcing the Constitution. You know, Robert Brown makes a lot of sense there. No matter how great a Constitution is, no matter how great a document is, it's only paper unless it's supported by the citizens, unless it's backed up by vigilant citizens who care about their rights and who care about freedom. And we haven't done that. And you may say, well, man, you've been black-pilled more than anybody. You say there's no hope with government. Well, that's true. I've said that plenty of times in different wording and that same wording as well. But I'm just here to tell you, unless we stand up for ourselves, nobody else is going to stand up for us. And it would be interesting to see how these more localized politicians and state politicians behave if several hundred people actually started holding their feet to the fire. I mean, how many, say one out of ten people, may care about the Constitution or know anything about their constitutional rights? And it's very few people. So if we did push that now, even at this late stage, what would happen? And you think about it, you still hear from time to time certain things are prevented or overturned because of constitutional law. So there is a possibility that it would have 
some meaning still. And also, I think that the Convention of States may streamline what the globalists are trying to do and just help them to take over even faster. So I think that we need to be aware of that. And I know that this has been kind of a tedious episode, a lot of quotes, a lot of samples, but I think it was important to get this out there because, again, this CONCON, this Convention of States, this Constitutional Convention is being pushed mainly by conservatives and pseudo-libertarians. And a lot of people, because we're so easily fooled by patriotic talk, you know, freedom talk, liberty talk, Convention of States, we're going to kick the government's ass and take the power back, that we don't look into the details. Most people don't look into the details anyway. They just grab on to slogans and whatever their favorite pundits, like Mark Levin or Ben Shapiro or Dennis Prager or Sean Hannity or whoever is saying, they grab onto that, they believe what these guys are saying, and they just go along with it. And so I just wanted to bring a little bit deeper meaning to this Convention of States, maybe get you guys interested in looking into it, look into what's going on in your state as far as the CONCON goes. And maybe you can get involved at a local level or a state level. Anyway, guys, this is the last oddcast of the year. Thank you so much for supporting the show. God bless you. I want to thank my wonderful patrons. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Crazy Bread Man, for being a covert co-conspirator. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ruckus, for being a producer of the show. Check out the Daily Ruckus on alternatecurrentradio.com. Also check out Ruckus's other gig on TNT Radio with Joseph Arthur. Thank you, No Evil Shall Fear. Thank you, Refsod. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Mark from Housatonic Live. Check out Mark's YouTube channel, Stat. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill, for being a producer of the show. Thank you, Peterson. Thank you, Rooster. Thank you, John Brisson. Check out We've Read the Documents on Odyssey. Thank you, The Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, David. And also thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Get on over there and check out Jack's show on YouTube and subscribe on Spotify or any other platform. I'm sure he's on all the platforms, so check out Jack's shows as well. And last but not least, thank you, AlternateCurrentRadio.com. That's my podcasting family over there. Check out all their talk and music shows. You can check out the Mighty Boiler Room, which is their flagship show, or as I said earlier, the Daily Ruckus. Give them some love. Tell them the odd man sent you. Also, thank you to Fringe Radio Network for also posting the show. I'll be talking to you guys soon. Happy New Year's. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. What happens if a legislature does include in its application limitations which try to force a convention to consider only one or a few subjects? This has happened routinely in our more recent history. The most recent movement for a CONCON has been dressed up as a movement to require Congress to call a convention for the limited purpose of proposing an amendment requiring a balanced federal budget. Other applications have sought a convention only to propose amendments to ban flag burning, to ban abortion, to establish term limits, to let states decide the apportionment of their legislative districts, 
and many other topics. The topics to which a convention is to be limited are always designed to be appealing. America's leading jurists and legal scholars, however, agree that legislatures have no authority to tell a convention what subjects it will address in a convention. United States Supreme Court justices and the nation's leading legal scholars have written privately that these single subject limitations cannot be enforced. That if a convention is called, it will be free to propose any kind and number of amendments to the same effect as if the limitations in the applications did not exist. In other words, although the applications are effective, all such limitations must be ignored. Chief Justice of the United States Warren Burger wrote, quote, I have also repeatedly given my opinion that there is no effective way to limit or muzzle the actions of a constitutional convention. The convention could make its own rules and set its own agenda. Congress might try to limit the convention to one amendment or to one issue, but there is no way to assure that the convention would obey. After a convention is convened, it will be too late to stop the convention if we don't like its agenda. Ending of quote. Chief Justice Berger has issued a stern warning. Nobody tells a CONCON what to do. Its powers to propose amendments are unlimited. In light of this information, does America, do you really want to risk a convention? As we will explore later, the risk of a convention is far greater than commonly understood. Chief Justice Berger continues saying, quote, whatever gain might be hoped for from a new constitutional convention could not be worth the risk involved. A new convention could plunge our nation into constitutional confusion and confrontation at every turn with no assurance that focus would be on the subject needing attention. I have discouraged the idea of a constitutional convention and I am glad to see states rescinding their previous resolutions requesting a convention. In these bicentennial years, we should be celebrating its long life, not challenging its very existence. Ending the quote.